Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. Enough is enough. What we've seen over the past two weeks is what you might call a preponderance of evidence in the impeachment case against President Trump. The public hearing phase of impeachment is now concluded. Twelve witnesses offered hours of testimony, each corroborating a pretty simple, straightforward assertion that the president mounted a coordinated effort to pressure Ukraine into publicly announcing an investigation of his domestic political rival in exchange for a White House meeting and badly needed military aid. Fun fact, a preponderance of evidence is a real legal term, meaning there is greater than a 50% chance that based on all the evidence shown, the plaintiff's claims are true and the defendant did in fact do the thing he is accused of. It's used in a civil case. And by any reasonable person's standards, the evidence relayed by the 12 witnesses would easily meet the 50% threshold. But this, as you know, is not a legal process. It's a purely political one. And so, no matter the preponderance of evidence, Republicans in the House and the Senate, as well as voters at home, will have to decide if Trump is guilty of anything. To be clear, there is more evidence we did not hear. There are still plenty of Democrats who want to hear from Twitter tease John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, Mike Pompeo. But there is enough already to know exactly what the president did and what he wanted. There was Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and Jennifer Williams, an aide to Vice President Mike Pence, both of whom were on the July 25th phone call between Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky. Not hearsay, they were on the call. There was Kurt Volker and Tim Morrison, two witnesses called by Republicans, the former who said investigating Burisma meant investigating Biden, and the latter who said aid was conditioned on a public statement from Zelensky announcing the Burisma investigation. And of course, there was Gordon Sondland, the Trump donor turned ambassador who appeared for the third time to say definitively what he knew, what everybody knew, as directed by the president himself. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. And to put a bow on it all, the White House's former top Russia advisor, Dr. Fiona Hill, testified that she told Sondland this whole domestic errand would blow up. He was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy. And those two things had just diverged. I did say to him, Ambassador Sondland, Gordon, I think this is all going to blow up. And here we are. She also offered this incredible warning to anyone, including the president, who is insisting Russia did not interfere in our elections. Right now, Russia's security services and their proxies have geared up to repeat their interference in the 2020 election. We are running out of time to stop them. In the course of this investigation, I would ask that you please not promote politically driven falsehoods that so clearly advance Russian interests. To this preponderance of evidence, Republicans had multiple objections, most of them desperate, none of them particularly compelling. I can boil it down to this. We need to subpoena Hunter Biden and the whistleblower for closed-door depositions, as well as relevant documents from the DNC. An Inquisition victim had more rights than the Democrats are giving the president. But there's at least one thing both sides seem to agree on. It's enough already. 
Even with our hands tied behind our backs, uh, we've been able to present to the American people a compelling argument for moving forward with a review of whether or not we should have articles of impeachment brought to the floor of the House. I think we've had enough. I think it's time to shut it down. So here's the deal. This is it, folks. Democrats and their multiple witnesses, even the two Republican witnesses, corroborated the basic facts day in and day out. Those facts used to be in dispute before the whistleblowers and the transcripts and the witnesses. Republicans disputed the facts. Then the facts came out. All Republicans could do was discredit the witnesses, distract, deflect. But the facts are now undisputed. What's left is whether what Trump did is impeachable, and that is in dispute. No House Republicans that we know of have indicated that they will vote to impeach. In fact, here was one Will Hurd, a frequent Trump critic. An impeachable offense should be compelling, overwhelmingly clear, and unambiguous, and it's not something to be rushed or taken lightly. I've not heard evidence proving the president committed bribery or extortion. I also reject the notion that holding this view means supporting all the foreign policy choices we have been hearing about over these last few weeks. It's also unclear whether, if Trump is impeached, any Republicans in the Senate will break ranks and vote to remove the president. And finally, the American people. You guys, you are divided, too. 50 percent of independents questioned in an NPR PBS Marist poll conducted this month did not support impeaching and removing Trump, with just 42 percent supporting it. Now, I've said all along whether you ultimately decide Trump should be impeached or not is a fair question. But the time to stop arguing the facts, what he did, why he did it, that's over. We know. It's clear. He pushed a foreign government to investigate his political rival for his own personal gain. And he used the office of the president and U.S. foreign policy to get what he wanted. Now, if you think that's okay. That's something that the next president and the next president and the next president should do with impunity. Well, that's your prerogative. Joining me now is a pair of CNN political commentators, host of The Van Jones Show, Van Jones, and former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Um, Van, look, to me, this meets any threshold for impeachment. But I want you to respond to what Republican, Republican Congressman Will Hurd said, that ultimately, in his mind, it didn't. Well, listen, I, I think it's a fair... Uh, I think people are saying, well, he's just a sellout. He's, yeah. I think if you're a Republican in this situation, you aren't just dealing with Trump above you. You're dealing with the base around you. And it's very, very difficult. He's the only African-American uh, uh, Republican that we have in, in the Congress. He's the only one that's been able to be as critical as he has been. If he's afraid to jump off of that uh, diving board, I don't think people should uh, attack him. I think we've got a much bigger problem which is that the polarization in this country is such that no matter what anybody says about the other side, people are going to be uh, dug into their, into their tribal camps. Uh, I think there's plenty of evidence at this point that uh, the president behaved in ways uh, that are wrong. And also uh, the, 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 the brave Ukrainians who really, that's the center of this thing. You've got Ukrainian freedom fighters who are up against you know, the biggest threat in the world, who were relying on Americans for help, their plight got turned into a political football. Yeah. That is a tragedy. And the fact that we can't even agree on that is, I think, a very, very uh, bad sign. Um, Charlie, there's so much evidence of what the president did and why he did it. Do you think House Republicans would ever vote to impeach the president, no matter how convincing the case against him was? 
see, at this moment, I'd have to say no, unless unless support from the Republican base diminishes for the president. I suspect most will stick with the president, at least on this issue of impeachment or indictment. I mean, what's really sad about this is I think everybody now agrees on the facts that, yes, there was a quid pro right. quo. Yes, the president did abuse his office and he has uh, this there is genuine misconduct in office here. So they're not disputing the facts. And the only issue they can debate now is whether this bad conduct rises to the level of impeachment. And, I mean, you know, that's a fair debate to have. Yeah. But I, I'll tell you what, I, I thought I understood the rules that, you know, you can't use your official resources to investigate your opponent, especially colluding right. with a foreign head of state. You can't use federal resources or federal dollars, you know, to coerce somebody yeah. uh, to uh, basically do what you want them to do. I thought I understood the rules and the standards. And I always thought the Department of Justice would be jumping up and down over something like this. But so, Charlie, maybe do you that, think maybe that the you rules are changing right before would, us? Would you have voted to impeach the president had you had you been in the House still? I, I certainly would have voted for the inquiry. Uh, and at this moment, I think that this I do think that this rises to the level of impeachment. Mm. And then I think we sh they should send this over and then let's have a trial uh, just to Senate, see what yeah. else. we. I like to hear what the president's defense yeah. is. So, Van, um, as you know, I'm not a Democrat. Um, I disagree with Democrats on a great many issues, but I was incredibly impressed Maybe, maybe even a little jealous of how well Democrats organized and conducted these hearings. This was not a circus. It wasn't weeks of grandstanding. The witnesses were incredibly impressive. The testimony was substantive. But all that said, I'm not sure to what end. I mean, according to, to most polls at this point, minds haven't really changed. Is this just going to end up being, to your point, a partisan exercise in futility? Uh, almost certainly so. I mean, part of the thing is, when you talk to regular people, uh, they see all these people on the screen who they've never heard of saying things that they don't know much about. That's a regular person. And yeah. so, you know, you, you, from a legal point of view, from a political point of view, those of us who are kind of news junkies and who are political professionals, we can appreciate the fact this was a disciplined hearing. Uh, there weren't a lot of, you know, uh, I am Spartacus moments. You know, yeah. there was like an actual, you know, uh, uh, but for, I think, regular people, this is a little bit above folks' heads, and people kind of just go to their own respective camps. I have to say, as proud as I am, uh, the Democrats have been a little bit more disciplined uh, through this process. We do pay a price for the fact that before the guy was even inaugurated, people yes. were screaming for him to be impeached. Yes. And so when you have, you know, That's part right. of our party right. screaming yes. impeachment literally well, and it before doesn't help even either. president. I mean, these, I, I've heard a number of congressional members say, look, you know, nobody comes to Congress to impeach a president. I can think of several who actually ran on it. So right. I, I, I hear you. There's, there's a trust deficit with that. But, Charlie, that's why every Saturday night I have tried to just boil down the facts skipping the, you know, Democratic talking points, skipping the Republican talking points in the spin. And the facts are fairly clear. Charlie, do you think that any Republicans in the Senate, where the weight of history is a bit heavier, will really take those facts into consideration and break with the president? Well, I, I think, S.E., as many as five Republicans could vote to conv convict. Hmm. I'll tell you, the real political pressure here in this situation will be on those five swing state 
uh, Senate Republicans who are up for election in, in 2020. You know, Susan Collins, Cory right. Gardner, Martha McSally, Tom Tillis, and Joni Ernst. They are the ones at greatest risk because I think many of them, they can't win simply with their base. They also need to persuade independent and swing voters. Yeah. And they, they, they need both in order to win. And this puts them in a horrible position. So I do think you could see some Senate Republicans uh, vote to convict, maybe a Mitt Romney, too. Right, who's not up until 2024. So he's got a much longer sort of runway uh, in, in, you know, before before punishment comes if he decides he wants to do that. Uh, former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent and host of The Van Jones Show, Van Jones, thank you both so much. And Van will be on at the top of the hour. He's speaking to brand new candidate, former Governor Deval Patrick and actress and activist Jane Fonda. Don't miss The Van Jones Show immediately after Unfiltered at 7. Up next, after two historic weeks of public impeachment testimony, the public so far is unmoved. Should make for some interesting Thanksgiving holiday conversations, especially if those are with constituents. Stick around. You can bet impeachment will be a hot topic at the Thanksgiving table this week. Just keep the wine flowing and wait for the tryptophan to kick in. That's my advice. But for most members of Congress, they will not only be hearing from their relatives when they go home, but their constituents. The polling, as we know by now, is split and it's plateaued, suggesting people's minds are pretty much made up. But if you zero in on independent voters, there's some room for movement. After the first week of hearings, an NPR Marist poll found almost two in five independents say their minds might be changed on impeachment compared to about one in four Democrats or Republicans. That makes these swing voters in more than one way. Republicans and Democrats in swing districts may get an earful from those voters when they get home. My next guest flipped a Republican district in 2018, so she's clearly aware of the independent voter factor. Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria joins me now. She's one of the signatories of the freshman Democrat op-ed that broke the dam to move impeachment forward. Congresswoman, um, before the hearings, you had a contentious town hall in your district. A number of voters told you effectively to stop impeachment proceedings. There were others who were in favor, of course. Um, do you expect that the hearings, now that we've actually seen them, will have changed any minds back at home? Well, hi. Uh, well, thanks for having me. And sure. I honestly think your characterization of the town hall is a little exaggerated. Hmm. Um, there were one or two people who, uh, you know, chose to yell out. But I honestly, I got a standing ovation when I gave. No, I watched it, and I watched there was there were protests in front forward. by Trump supporters. I watched the whole rally, and and you're absolutely right. right. And that's why I said there were a lot of people front, supporting yes. you as well. But you did get some resistance. I'm sure you would not disagree. Oh, there was one gentleman who um, was rather boisterous, and I, um, you know, appreciate that he was there voicing his opinion. But, um, you know, I think that the overwhelming response—you asked me to come on and talk about what I hear in my district—and, yeah, yeah. you know, anecdotally, I can talk about from the several hundred people I saw this morning. I was at a, a great event this morning, a Thanksgiving turkey giveaway, and. You know, the responses I get back are, thank you. Thank you for standing up for our country. And, you know, this is an area that is full of veterans um, right. and active duty military. One out of every five people in, the, in this area 
area. And, you know, people really believe in, you know, the oath of office that they've taken when they've served, standing yeah. up and defending the Constitution. And I've even had people who, you know, say they don't believe specifically in moving forward with impeachment, but that they respect um, the fact that I made that decision and why I made that decision to come out for the investigation. So, you know, in an area like this with so much military and so many people who've, you know, served themselves, um, yeah. I think that perhaps the reaction is, is, is a little bit different than other parts of the country. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And I, again, that's why I asked if you think the hearings really had a, an impact on that, because we saw, you know, not only Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman <coughs> appear in uniform, but it's really different um, mm -hmm. seeing his testimony rather than reading it. Um, so that, that's interesting to hear. Um, some Democratic House aides will spend next week putting together the report that will spell out the case for impeachment. Um, there's a debate underway about whether to include the episodes detailed in the Mueller report within an article of obstruction of justice. Do you think that Mueller details should be a part of this? Personally, I think that we should stay with the subject at hand, uh, with the uh, president's actions relative to Ukraine um, and the withholding of aid and the seeking of dirt on his political opponent. I think and I've always thought that we need to keep this very narrow. I heard the comments of the, the previous guests uh, beforehand and, and you remarked that you know there were people who came to Congress at the beginning of the session wanting to impeach before the president was even sworn in and I was right. not one of those people. Right. Um, this was a very clear and distinct set of events and that's why I and I joined with my colleagues colleagues to, to say we need to move forward, we need to investigate this, and we need to find out the facts. Yeah, and I do, I, I want to make note, I do appreciate your service. As you have said, you know, you did not spend, you know, 20, 20 years um, serving to come and, and do this political act. I completely understand that. Um, the, the White House has blocked various witnesses from testifying. They've withheld documents. Do you think impeachment should move ahead without um, getting all the information from people maybe like John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney. Do you think you have enough even without their testimonies? I think I have enough. I think it's been clearly established that the president used his office for his personal gain and to find dirt on a future political opponent and to withhold aid from an ally who needed that aid. And I have enough information. I am positive that there's more information out there. But yeah. I think at this point, we the facts are clear. You know, there was a quid pro quo. Uh, we heard that from Sondland. We heard over and over again from witnesses this week who corroborated the yeah. same facts, um, that what we believed happened did in fact happen, and that the motivations behind it were to get uh, Ukraine to investigate uh, Joe Biden and his son. Quickly before you go, I've asked every Democrat that's come on since impeachment um, if the impeachment actually ends up helping Trump get reelected and maybe even turns the House back over to Republicans. Will it still have been the right thing to do in your in your mind? I think it was the right thing to do. I think that, you know, we cannot stand by and tolerate these type of actions from our president. And that I know that, you know, as a member of the House, I will have done the right thing uh, to vote for this inquiry. And then when I see the articles to eventually make that decision, and I believe vote in favor of impeachment. And that will be left to our colleagues on the other side of the building and their conscience about what's yeah. right um, and what's right for upholding the Constitution. But I think I've done the right thing and I've done my part. Indeed. Well, have a great week off and a great Thanksgiving. Congresswoman Elaine Luria, thanks for, for joining me tonight. Thank you. Sure. Programming note, tomorrow, a CNN special report, All the President's Lies, hosted by Jake Tapper. It airs tomorrow night at 9. And still to come for me, 
Biden's unshakable support among non-white voters, Mayor Pete's practically non-existent support from those same voters, uneven debate performances versus polished ones. It's almost as if Democrats smushed these guys together. They'd have a real shot at this. That's next. Watch me. That's the message from Joe Biden to those who question whether he is the best candidate to take on Trump in an exclusive interview with CNN's Don Lemon last night. The former vice president specifically hit back at Mike Bloomberg's potential candidacy due to concerns about Biden's political strength. Someone in, in his campaign said, or, or someone said specifically, he has specific concerns about your ability to carry this through to the finish line. What do you say about that? Watch me. Watch me. <laughs> that came off a little creepier than it did in real time. But uh, America has been watching Joe Biden. And Biden continues to deliver less than stellar debate performances by anyone's measure. But he also continues to enjoy unmatched support among non-white voters, which has carried his poll numbers to top-tier status for months. Among African-American voters in South Carolina, Biden has 44 percent support, contributing to his 20-point lead there. Now, the flip side of that coin is Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who consistently delivers near-perfect debate performances, but is struggling to expand his base beyond uh, white college-educated voters. Evidenced by one of the longest-serving black council members in the city, he serves as mayor, endorsing Biden. It's as if Buttigieg and Biden have what the other is lacking, like they complete each other. If only Democrats could smush them together. But Buttigieg isn't a thing. So with me now to discuss is the co-founder and managing editor of The Beat DC, Tiffany Cross, and former communications director for the National Republican Congressional Committee, Matt Gorman. Um, Tiffany, Buttigieg has seen a number of good bumps over the course of the primary, um, bumps that, frankly, candidates like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris kind of wished they'd been getting um, themselves. But he does have this huge deficit among African-American voters. Can he overcome it? Yeah, I, I think he can. And I think it's interesting how we frame the conversation. Okay. Uh, I think the media still, um, you know, kind of uplifts Buttigieg's campaign hmm. repeatedly, even though the black vote is uh, a constituency path that leads directly to the White Everything House. Everything so, for Democrats. Right, exactly. Yes. And so it's odd that we just kind of dismiss Kamala Harris's campaign because she still has a ground swelling among, uh, you know, some uh, voters across the We're country. We're not dismissing it. She's just not well, doing not, very not, well. Perhaps not you personally, but there yeah. is a huge, I mean, a lot of articles and print and broadcast hmm. Have all but dismissed her campaign. Hmm. So I, it's just an interesting um, um, uh, Well, no, but I'm curious. How do you think he can overcome it? So I think Pete has done some things. I mean, he came out with the Douglas plan. He's trying. He did have some flubs with, you know, yeah. using that picture um, from Kenya, which I do think is a bit of a nothing burger because, okay. you know, if you know stock photos, you know how this stuff goes in, totally. in media. Yes. So it's not a yes. huge deal. And I think, you know, look, we know that Joe Biden is leading, but he was just the vice president for a very popular president. Sure. There's yeah. a lot of name recognition there that plays into it. Yeah. When you, we all consume the minutia of this stuff. When you get out into, um, you know, different communities, most people are not watching these debates from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know how to say uh, Pete Buttigieg's last name. So they <laughs> yeah. don't really know well, him. We're a long way away from the first round of votes, and I think he has to give people an opportunity to know him, just like all the rest of the candidates do. Well, Matt, I mean, speaking yeah. of the last debate, no one really took Buttigieg on, yeah. and um, <clears throat> you know, Tulsi Gabbard tried. He absolutely roasted her. Yeah. Do you think the other candidates are afraid to take on Pete Buttigieg, or do you think that's a 
sort of a sign that they're not all that worried about him. Well, they should be now. He was the only one on that stage who proved he knew how to ad lib an attack line. The other ones do it, and it comes off mm-hmm. as corny and un- as unpre- uh, unprepared. But, you know, look, he's the one leading in Iowa consistently now. He, he led a New Hampshire poll. So I don't know what they're waiting for. And, and you're Ooh. right. The other candidates in attacking him. Taking him on. Yeah, you know, Kamala specifically pulled back from attacking him mm-hmm. and attacked Tulsi. I didn't know mm-hmm. if that was a grudge match or because <laughs> right. their poll numbers are more aligned than, than with Buttigieg. Because it's easy. Yeah, but l- look, <laughs> and he was very uh, adept at pushing back on Tulsi, which, again, other candidates have not been able to do as well. Um, Tiffany Biden had a number of gaffes on Wednesday, um, saying we need to keep punching at domestic violence. Yes. Is that a saying? I've never heard it. <laughs> um, it was an unfortunate one. Yeah. Uh, a couple others. I mean, some of his opponents openly laughed at him on that debate stage. Yeah. And yet, he is consistently polling at front-runner numbers. What do you make of that? So I, this is a very honest conversation we have to have. Yeah. When The fact that he's doing so well with black voters is not necessarily like, oh, we just love Joe Biden. It is mm. black voters' lack of trust in the rest of the country, in the rest of voters. When I talk to voters in South Carolina, in Ohio, in Nevada, they all say collectively, listen, America is not going to elect another person of color as president. I don't believe that to be true, but this is how voters okay. feel. America is not going to elect a woman as president. So we have to go with a safe bet. We cannot vote bold. I would actually disagree mm with that strongly, vehemently. However, uh, I think in these very, you know, divisive political times, people are scared. It's like, you know, fool me once, twice shy. And so people don't want to take a chance of having Trump uh, get a second term. And I I feel like also that was very much sentiment when uh, Barack, before Barack Obama won the Iowa caucuses in early 2008. You know, he won a very liberal but very white state. Mm. And I think once that Mm -hmm. happens, it opens people's eyes. Right. Thanks, Matt and Tiffany, for your time. Appreciate it. Okay, candidate Trump made lots of promises President Trump has not kept. Do the Democrats have such a skilled salesperson in their ranks? Yes, yes, they do. I'll tell you who it is next. In the red file tonight, the I've got a plan candidate, or does she? It's the de facto presidential motto of Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has Lofty ideas, which include, but are not limited to, Medicare for all, universal child care, free college, and canceling student debt, and all at little or no cost to the middle class. You know, it reminds me of another candidate who once pitched similarly lofty ideas that served as the dinner bell for base voters eager to dig into some red meat. A big, beautiful concrete border wall that Mexico would pay for. New coal, steel, and manufacturing jobs. A beautiful new alternative to Obamacare and easy-to-win trade wars. Despite these campaign promises being on the opposite sides of the political spectrum, Warren is sounding a lot like the Democrats' Donald Trump, whether because of political realities, Congress, the Constitution, or the courts. Trump was never going to be able to do many of the things he was promising in 2015, from denuking North Korea to ending birthright citizenship. For Warren, too, cost, Congress, the Constitution would all be significant barriers to her many plans. That should concern Democrats, especially the ones who support her and believe she can actually make good on her many promises. Okay, with me now is former presidential candidate, former DNC chairman Howard Dean. Governor, first, let's dispatch with the idea that Trump and Warren are similar personally. They are not, of course. But I remember asking Trump supporters before 2016 if they were bothered that much of what he was promising he'd never be able to deliver. And they said, nope, 
The promises were enough. Now, Warren cannot possibly do a lot of the things she's promising. Should that matter? Well, actually, I think she probably can, because Trump has given a great gift to the Democrats. He's run up a trillion-dollar-a-year debt uh, with his tax cut, which really does go to almost certainly most, mostly billionaires in the top 1%. Okay. So there's no reason for that tax cut. It didn't do anything for anybody. It probably cost more American jobs, and it certainly raised taxes uh, on a lot of working people. Uh, you get rid of that tax cut. Bang. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a whole lot of money. Uh, well, okay, with. but let's start. So, let's talk about the cost of, of many of her plans. When you tally them up, yep. you're into the trillions uh, adding to the debt and requiring trillions in taxpayer funding. I mean, we'd likely go bankrupt before she could achieve what she's promising. Shouldn't we consider Warren's proposals as more of a wish list and not a real plan that she intends to implement? Look, I know Elizabeth well, and Elizabeth okay. doesn't BS. There are plenty of people who say those things, and they turn out not to be true. I guarantee you that. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm unaligned too. I'm not supporting a particular candidate because of sure. my role with the Democratic Party. But sure. just to defend Elizabeth, she is a straight shooter. Uh, she is. I, I chuckled when you said she was like Donald Trump. Donald Trump tells 66 <laughs> lies a week. I understand. I I'm not Elizabeth saying they're similar personally. So look, I know. So here's what I think is likely to happen. One, we will have Medicare for all, but it will be uh, the, the mandatory get rid of the insurance part. She has already said is going to be delayed. I don't think the Congress will pass that. But mm -hmm. they, to open up Medicare for all is going to solve a huge problem. That's what Obama tried to do, and we lost okay. it by only a single vote. Uh, secondly, forgiveness of college debt. That's very, very important. And she is actually only talking about forgiving college debt for those people who, uh, who need it. Uh, mm -hmm. There'd be a means test. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty... And that's the, uh, the thing that's so great about that is it primes the pump economically. Instead of giving tax cuts to gazillionaires sure. who then reinvest it in the stock market, you're going to give tax cuts to people who have to spend the money, which is former students and, and existing students. Sure. Look, that look, makes sense. Those are, I, I get that. That's two of her, like, 3,000 expansion of government programs. And, for, I mean, they're just going to, they're going to add up. She's not going to be able to pay for all of them. Uh, I, you know, I don't think anyone really believes that. But, look, I'm not calling her a liar. I'm just saying she's going to run into some barriers here, another of which will be the Constitution. She's already run up against some scrutiny for the constitutionality of her proposed tax on net worth her proposed ban on fracking and some other proposals. You know, Trump has tied up the courts testing the constitutionality of countless of his proposals. Do we really want more of that? Well, look, she's not going to do this all on the first day. I mean, no, no president can do it's that. It's not a timing her issue. It's a constitutional issue. Well, then we'll then we'll litigate it. If there's a constitutional issue and that's what the Constitution says, obviously, unlike Trump, we're going to abide by the Constitution on our side. We actually believe in democracy in the Democratic Party. I hear you. And just finally, I mean, when it comes to the Congress, do you really think she's going to have a Congress that's just going to sign off on all this stuff? I mean, she really has to have good partners, not just on the right, but in her own party among Democrats who won their elections in the House in 2018, resisting a lot of what she has proposed. Real quick. The, not, the nice thing about Elizabeth, she actually does have good collegial relationships with the Congress. And the answer is no, of course she's not going to get everything. Okay. Un, unlike Trump, again, we're not interested in running the Congress out of the place, although this particular Congress, particularly in the Senate, should be run out of the place. We're, right. we're, we'll work with them. And there are conservatives we can work with. I will with. hold you Just to that. Just none of them seem to have the backbone to, hold <laughs> to stand up to Trump. Yeah.
Okay, well, Governor, I appreciate it. Really, I appreciate you running through this with me. And uh, we'll have you back, and we'll talk about it some more. Thanks. Thank you. All right, the president is once again slow walking a critical public safety issue to please his base. That's next. Breaking news tonight, according to the Supreme Court, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was admitted Friday night to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore after experiencing chills and fever. She's being treated and expects to be released as early as Sunday morning. We'll follow that for you. In other health-related news, just two months after saying he would ban the sale of most flavored e-cigarettes, President Trump now says prohibition is not the answer. So what changed? Lobbyists and political advisors got in his ear and warned him about the potential fallout among his supporters. Now, even a weak ban on flavored e-cigarettes that exempted menthol has been abandoned, at least for now. Let me take you back to September when Trump promised to ban dangerous e-cigarettes, saying we can't allow people to get sick and we can't have our kids be so affected. He then pointed to his wife, Melania, saying she's got a son. She feels very strongly about it. Let's be clear, vaping has killed people. According to the CDC's latest count, there have been 47 deaths and more than 2,000 lung injuries related to vaping. But politics has prevailed, and not for the first time. Trump has done the same with guns, promising action on gun safety and then backing off at the NRA's behest. So what happens when a president plays politics with health crises? With me now is Harvard Medical School professor Alan Brandt, who is also author of the book, The Cigarette Century. Professor, talk about flavored e-cigs. Just how dangerous are they for young people in particular? Well, they're extremely dangerous. And we now have data that shows that more than 5 million middle schoolers and high schoolers are using e-cigarettes every month. And it's really devastating, actually, because we've made so much progress in reducing the use of cigarettes, which obviously have nicotine. And what we're now really seeing is not children changing from combustible, regular cigarettes to e-cigarettes. They're actually using these vaping devices, especially jewels, for the first time. These are never smokers. And we're giving them, you know, a lifetime potentially of addiction. So I think it's really unconscionable what's happened. And it's really time to remember that these issues are not red or blue issues. These are issues of human health and issues that are really affecting our kids. So Trump at least initially seemed to see the need for a ban on these dangerous products. How powerful is the vaping lobby? Because they seem to have really gotten to him. The vaping lobby is very powerful and it's very much, you know, based on and related to the history of the tobacco lobby. And Mm -hmm. in my historical research, one of the arguments that I make is that the tobacco industry really built special interest lobbying. They invented the problem that so much of our politics has today. Mm -hmm. And Juul and other vaping groups have really bought into the idea that they can compromise public health for profits. And this is an example, much like big tobacco, where we've put profits ahead of people in public health, especially our kids. You know, experts are increasingly seeing gun violence as a public health crisis as well in a very similar way. But the politics just seems so 
prohibitive in terms of making some fixes. What can we do to lessen the influence of politics on these public health issues from guns to vaping? Well, we need leadership. We need public health experts to speak out. We need to really push the evidence-based arguments of the harms that result from products like guns and, and tobacco and now um, vaping. And it really requires leadership. It will require leadership in all parts of our government to really push back against these special interests. And it's a yeah. real element of what public health has mm-hmm. to be. Professor, thanks so much uh, for coming on and for your insight. We'll be right back. Thank you. We're all well aware of the political divide in America that threatens to ruin our Thanksgiving holidays. But what about the generational divide? You've probably heard the meme sweeping the nation. No? Okay, Boomer. No, that's the meme. Okay, Boomer is used mainly by Gen Xers and millennials to laugh off or dismiss the advice of the Boomer generation when they say things like, you should be saving up for a house, or the war on drugs worked. Okay, Boomer. Well, it is everywhere now. A young New Zealand member of parliament used it against an older heckler during a conversation on climate change. Fox is attempting to trademark the phrase for a new television show. No surprise, boomers don't generally like it. An AARP representative clapped back at the taunt in an interview saying, okay, millennials, but we're the people that actually have the money. And now workplaces are threatening to ban the saying because it violates the Age Discrimination in Employment Act, apparently. But, you know, the meme is also highlighting a very real increasing divide between the generations in our politics and our news consumption, social causes and community, drugs, war, marriage, the environment. Maybe this Thanksgiving, instead of talking about Trump and impeachment, we should try talking to our youngers and our elders about these other differences in our worldviews. Okay, Boomer may be a meme, but it's also a meaningful discussion point. Okay, that's it for me, but One more reminder that Sunday night is a big night here at CNN. Anderson Cooper will take a closer look at the key impeachment testimony in a special hour, the impeachment inquiry. In the words of the witnesses, it airs tomorrow night at 8. Up next is The Van Jones Show. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.